Welcome. You are listening to the Upper Room Podcast. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit URFellowship.com. So happy 4th of July, happy Independence Day. I would like to talk today on this Independence Day about the, uh, the tension between a church and politics, or the church and cultural issues, maybe. So maybe some of you are a little bit confused about how we approach the topics of, of political and cultural issues and those sorts of things. And maybe the reason you're confused is never because I've never really clearly explained this succinctly. And so I want to talk about it. And to the best of my ability, I want to explain why we do what we do and the approach we take. And I must admit up front, I have been um, influenced by things I saw in church early on, even as a kid. Uh, it just seemed like churches, growing up, churches were against everything. So I just thought that's kind of what Christians do. We have leaflets and flyers and bumper stickers, and you boycott stuff, right? I remember there was a time Christians were supposed to boycott McDonald's, uh, Disney World. We were against Cabbage Patch dolls at one time. I don't know why. But, and I mean, the church, the American church was, it was defending the truth, standing for what was right. And as I've gotten older, honestly, I agree with sort of the, the, sort of the spirit in which those things were done. And I certainly agree in some cases about what the scripture taught about those things, but it was just like a little weird that every time we turned around, the American church was kind of against something. So I, and some, of you, some of you know my story, I walked away from Christianity for a time because I decided that I needed to really sort out what I believed. And so I stepped back and I looked at many of the world's belief systems very closely. And I gave them, I really tried to give them an all an equal opportunity to persuade me of truth. And through that, came to believe that the story of Jesus was by far the most compelling and truthful. And so when I came back to my Christian faith, I decided I didn't want to spend the rest of my life as a Christian, nor as a Christian leader, just being kind of against everything in culture. Because as I began to read with fresh eyes the epistles of the Apostle Paul, it occurred to me that neither Jesus nor, the, nor Paul positioned themselves against everything in culture, or even against the Roman Empire. In fact, the only thing those two guys were consistently against were the people on the religious side of the aisle, who were, who they were against everything. That was the only group that they were ever against. They were always, they were always in conflict with the Pharisees. So basically, and I'm generalizing, I know, but what, it, what I saw was that it seemed like much of the American church looked kind of like this. Become like us, and then you can join us. Become like us, and then you can join us. You know, while you're embracing these sinful lifestyles or these bad habits or, you know, supporting candidates we don't agree with us, you know, you stay over there. But once you become like us, then you can join us. Now, for those of you who know the New Testament, who's that sound like? Pharisees. It doesn't sound like Jesus, right? It doesn't sound like the Apostle Paul. The religious world that I grew up in, and many of you did as well, I'm sure, was kind of like this. It was all about, we're making a point but we aren't really making a difference. We're preaching against it. We're boycotting it. And the righteousness and the holiness and all those things I completely agree with, but we're making a point, but we aren't making any difference in our community. And I want you to hear this. This is huge. It's 
always easier to make a point than it is to make a difference. It's always easier to make a point than to make an actual difference. And every parent listening knows this, right? You have at some point sat down with your kids and you said, okay, give me your undivided attention, blah, 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 blah. Now go to your room and I'm going to give you some time to think about it. And they run off, they scamper off to their room and you're, you're thinking, you're sitting there thinking, they're, they're probably thinking about the wisdom of mom and dad right now. And as a parent, you feel good because you made your point. And then you can't understand why your kids do the exact same thing the next day. Here's why. Because telling you you're wrong is different than guiding you to do something different. It's always easier to make a point than it is to make an actual difference. We want to be a difference-making church. And you know what? To make a difference requires a completely different strategy than the strategy required to make a point. <clears throat> and you can gather a crowd around making a point. Making a difference takes longer. Making a difference is much harder. Making a difference sometimes is very slow going. It takes a lot of steady plotting. We want to be a church that really genuinely makes a difference. And when you read the Gospels and when you read the book of Acts and when you read the epistles of Paul, they basically give us a roadmap about how to do this. And just so you know, they pulled it off. Okay? Within 300 years, basically, of the death of Jesus, the, the Roman Empire embraced Christianity. And I know what you're thinking. We don't have 300 years. Well, yeah, we don't. I mean, but someone does. The, the Jesus followers that come after us. But within 300 years, Christianity changed an empire in terms of an ideology and a religious system that had been around for thousands of years. And they didn't do it by making a point. Because the early Christians had no platform. There was no social media. There was no media outlets. They, they had no power and culture at all. They had no money. They had very little organization. They had nothing but some of the things we're going to talk about today. But they brought about huge cultural change. Here's what they did. We are going to look at Jesus and Paul specifically. They, they constantly leaned relationally in the direction of those they disagreed with the most. They were constantly moving closer relationally to those they disagreed with the most. In other words, they were constantly building relational bridges to the people that they wanted to influence. A great example of this is one day the Apostle Paul is in Athens. Uh, he's walking around. This is Acts 17. And he notices there's all these idols to all these different gods. It's a very religious city back then. <clears throat> and he notices all these gods. Now think about this. Paul is an educated Jewish man, and the predominant law throughout the land concerning Judaism was, don't have any idols. You weren't allowed to do anything that reflected any kind of image of the Hebrew God. In fact, the people who actually copied the Old Testament scripture, oftentimes they wouldn't even write the word God, because they were afraid by writing the word God, it would be an image, and they would violate the law of God. That's how kind of crazy they were about images. <clears throat> so here's the Apostle Paul walking around a city full of images of false gods. So what would have been the easiest sermon to preach? Be to preach against idolatry. Just look at all these examples, you know? And he would have been exactly right, <clears throat> but he would have made no difference. And he was smart enough to know, I'm not here to make a point, I'm here to make a difference. So he did this brilliant thing. He finds this altar that doesn't have an image on it, and the altar is dedicated to the unknown God. 
Now, this is kind of funny. The Athenians didn't want to offend any of the gods, so they thought we might have left one out accidentally. So let's have an empty altar in case that new god shows up. We can say, okay, we just didn't know what you looked like, but here, see, it's ready for you. We have this altar for you. That's, what they, that's how they thought. So Paul says, okay, I have an idea. So he says, men of Athens, I notice that you're very religious in every way. Common ground. I'm religious too. We have something in common here. I'm a very devout religious person, just like you are. And he goes on, and he talks, and he says, I'd like to talk to you about this unknown God. And he does not preach against idolatry. He preaches for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at the end of the message, a handful of people said, I would like to come back tomorrow and hear more. He didn't position himself against. He relationally moved closer to the people he disagreed with the most. Here's the other thing he knows. Paul and Jesus were constantly at odds with the religious leaders of their day. If you had sat the Apostle Paul and Jesus down with the Pharisees and had a quiz about theology, their theology would have matched up almost perfectly. They all agreed that there was one God. They all agreed that everything was created by God. They all agreed that everything belonged to God. They all agreed on the morality of the Hebrew scriptures, the ethics. They all agreed that it was important to take care of the poor. I mean, you just go right down the list. They agreed on just about everything. But they were constantly betting heads over their approach. Their approach was so different that ultimately it was the Pharisees that had Jesus crucified and had the Apostle Paul arrested. But if there was a theology test, people from the outside would have seen very little difference in the theology of the Pharisees and the theology of the Apostle Paul or even Jesus. But because their approach was different, they were always butting heads with the people they agreed with the most. The third thing we see is this. Jesus and Paul were not concerned about guilt by association. Now let me be clear. This is not a good parenting strategy. Okay? This isn't go home and tell your kids, don't, I don't care who you associate with. But here's the thing. Neither the Apostle Paul nor Jesus was concerned about guilt by association. Let me ask you a question. In the New Testament, who was, who was the group that was fanatically concerned about guilt by association? Pharisees. So much so that they arrest Jesus, they, they try him illegally, they beat him, they hire false witnesses against him, then they take him to Pilate, and Pilate says, yeah, come on in, and they said, oh no, we can't go in your house. We'll become ceremonially unclean. Hypocrites, right? But you never find Jesus worried about guilt by association. In fact, what was Jesus' reputation? What do they say about Jesus? He was the what? The friend of sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. His reputation is he spent too much time with the wrong kind of people. So there's Jesus with the tax collect, the tax gatherer and the prostitutes and the sinners, to which we say, okay, Jesus, by hanging out with tax collectors, are you saying that it's okay to cheat people on their taxes? Jesus, by hanging out with people with different sexual standards, are you saying that it's okay? Jesus, by hanging out with sinners, are you saying it's okay to sin? To which Jesus would say, Are you kidding me? Sin will ultimately have me nailed to a cross. Sin will ultimately cost me my life. What do you mean am I condoning sin? I'm not condoning sin. I'm trying to reach sinners. Sin's so bad, I'm trying to save people from it. I'm actually trying to engage people who need this message. 
And I could care less. I couldn't care less that you criticize me for who I hang out with. You never ever find the Apostle Paul or Jesus concerned about guilt by association. The other thing you find is this. <clears throat> they refused to be dragged into de- two debates that distracted them. Sorry. They refused to be distracted by debates that distracted them from their primary message. This is big. They refused to be dragged into debates that distracted them from their primary issues. So Jesus is walking along one day, and the Pharisees say, Hey, we got a question. What do you think about paying Caesar's taxes? What do you think about all this taxation? Do you think we should pay, pay taxes? It's a trick question. Jesus is like, I'm not here to solve your tax issue. Anybody got a coin? They give him a coin. Jesus says, who is this? Well, that's Caesar. We give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God's. See ya. And the Pharisees are like, oh, geez, who thought of that stupid question? That was a terrible question. One day, Jesus is walking along, Matthew 21, just walking along one day, and the Pharisees say, hey, Jesus, all this stuff you're teaching, all this crazy, wild, you know, new stuff you're teaching, love your enemies and all that, by whose authority are you teaching? Trick question. Jesus said, well, I'll answer your question with a question. By whose authority did John the Baptist baptize? So they go, um, hang on. They got to go over here and huddle, have a little huddle. They all go off into the side, and they're like, okay, if we say it was God's authority, he's going to ask us why we didn't let John baptize us. If we say it wasn't God's authority, then the people are going to be mad because the people just love John the Baptist. So all these courageous Pharisees go, okay, good huddle, break. And they come back to Jesus and they say, we don't know. Jesus says, and I'm not going to tell you either. And he walks off. Did Jesus know by whose authority he did what he did and said what he said? Of course he did. But he also knew that sometimes there are questions you shouldn't answer. There are questions you should not answer based on who's asking and when they're asking and why they're asking it. It's not that you don't know the answer. It's that I will not be dragged into issues that are not central to why we are here. The next one's this. They didn't judge non-Christians for behaving like non-Christians. I mean, the church, through the ages, the church loses its influence in culture to the degree that they try to, be, to police the behavior of people who aren't even a part of the church. The church has its greatest influence when the church polices its own behavior and understands that people who have never embraced Christianity are not going to act like Christians. But there have been many pockets through American history where people spend most of their time criticizing non-Christians for not acting like Christians. Here's what Paul taught. He asked this question, 1 Corinthians 5.12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Pretty clear. The implication is, it's not any of my business. Why in the world would we hold people who aren't even Christians accountable to a set of rules that they never subscribed to begin with? The church shines the brightest when Christians act like Christians. And when Christians refuse to police their own behavior and try to police everybody else's, that's hypocrisy. People see that from a mile off. You never find that with Jesus. You never find that with the Apostle Paul. Paul didn't go to, into Athens and go, I can't believe you're worshiping these idols. 
course they're worshiping idols. They're not Jewish. They're not Christians. He never expected non-Christians to behave like Christians. This is something that gets the church in trouble generation after generation after generation. You might say, well, shouldn't we be concerned about people's behavior? Shouldn't we try to have a more moral culture? Absolutely. That's why we should build relational bridges. That's why we cannot be content to sit back and make points. We've got to be about our Father's business to make a difference. So those are some of the things that you observe here. Now, real quickly, here's what Jesus said about this. And you probably know these verses. He said this. He said, you are the light of the world. Meaning the world's dark, and God has put a flashlight in it, and that's you. The world's dark, the world is in trouble, the world is wandering around in darkness, and God has done something unique in this generation. He's put a light in the world, and you are that light. He goes on to say, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds, not your billboard, and glorify your Father in heaven. I think billboards are fine. You know, do cute little Christian billboards all day long. It's just not going to make any difference. Here's what Jesus said. You want to make a difference? Do you want to be a light to where people go, wow, that is so different? He said, you've got to live your life in such a way that they see your good deeds. And after they see your good deeds, they begin to connect the dots and they glorify your Father in heaven. He's saying, look, you need to conduct your morality, your marriage, the way you raise your kids, the way you spend your money, the way you give your money, the way you participate in the community, the way you foster, the way you adopt, the way you love, the way you don't judge. You need to do it in such a way that people in darkness look at you and go and look at us, the community, and go, well, I don't know if I really want to be one of those Christians, but I'd like to hire a bunch of them. They tell the truth. I don't know if I ever want to be one of those, but I hope my daughter marries one because they're so moral. And once they make a commitment to marriage, they keep their promises and they keep their commitments. Jesus said, I want you to live your life in such a way you make a difference. Isaiah 58 tells us how to shine our light. Listen to this. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. It says, get rid of the finger pointing and the malicious talk. Serve the hungry and the oppressed. That's how you're going to shine a light. Paul said this, and he said it many ways, but here's one. He says, be wise. This is, this is the Apostle Paul talking to Christians. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. So this isn't good people versus bad people. This is just people who believe versus people who don't believe. They're outside the faith. Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. In other words, every time you have an opportunity to influence someone, every time you have an opportunity to have a conversation with someone around the issue of faith, be wise in the way that you manage that conversation. Then he goes on and he says, let your conversations be always full of, what's it say? Grace. And that little word, full here, means like filled to the rim. Almost no room for anything else. 
just enough room for a little sprinkle of salt, seasoned with salt. Do you know what we've done for a long time? We've had our conversations full of salt, sprinkled with a little bit of grace. Well, but if you ask Jesus to forgive you, you can join us. See, you're bad, you're wrong, you're evil, you're doing it wrong, you're corrupting, you're bad, you're evil. But if you ask for forgiveness, a little sprinkle of grace, you can be forgiven. See, that's how you make a point. It's not how you make a difference. You know how you, become, you became a Christian? You became a Christian because somebody flooded you with grace. There was something attractional. And you weren't sure that you, maybe you didn't buy all of it because there was that salt, but there was just so much grace. Now, here's the cool thing. After Paul was beheaded by Nero, and after Jesus is gone, the next 300 years of Christianity, the Christians got this right. Christians rose to the occasion, and they were the light of the world, and it made a huge, huge difference. And as you know, by the time Constantine came along, he embraced Christianity. There's a lot of stories about whether or not how that's true and how that happened. But at the end of the day, we know persecution of Christians stopped, and Rome became a Christian nation. What you may not know is a couple of emperors later is an emperor called Emperor Julian. Julian the Apostate, they called him. Because Emperor Julian decided, hey, enough of Christianity. We've got to take this thing back to our roots. We've got to take Rome back. So Emperor Julian decides to reinstitute paganism in Rome. But he ran into some trouble. The trouble was Christianity had such incredible momentum. And Christianity was known for its generosity and known for its benevolence. So when he built some new temples to these pagan gods, and when he re reinstituted the priesthood of the pagans, it just didn't work, didn't gain any traction. And we actually have a fragment of a letter that he wrote complaining about it. I want to read this to you. So here we are, about uh, 355 to 365 AD, Emperor Julian the Apostate, complaining about the fact that we can't get this paganism thing going because of these crazy Christians. Now listen carefully, carefully to what he's complaining about. Here we go. It says, recent Christian growth is caused by their moral character, even if pretended, and by their benevolence towards strangers. So he's going, okay, we have the problem here. These Christians are too moral. They're so moral, they do all the right things, and it's hard for us to compete with that. Now, I don't believe it's sincere. I think they're pretending. Nobody's really that good. Nobody loves their wife that much. Nobody loves their children that much. Nobody's really that good. But even if it's pretended character, it's hard to compete with. He goes on, when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, so he's talking about his own priests, because why should they care about you if God doesn't care about you? He says, when they're overlooked by their priests, these impious Galileans, that's how he referred to Christians, the impious Galileans observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. It gets worse. The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. How are we going to compete with that? The Christians keep taking in children. The Christians keep taking care of the poor. The Christians keep giving generously. Nobody's going to join our cult when they've got that as an option. It's pretty powerful. He went on to say, these impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. You know why Rome finally switched over to Christianity? It wasn't because of preaching. It wasn't because of billboards. I love billboards. They're great. I love preaching. It's great. It's what I do, right? 
It wasn't because Christians got together and made a point. They decided, let's just do what Jesus told us to do. Let's turn all conviction into action. Let's just be a light. Let's police our own behavior. Let's be moral. Let's have better marriages. Let's value the life of children. Let's be more generous. Let's be more benevolent. Like we're going to take children in and love on them. Let's get this right and we'll be like a light in the dark world. And you know what? If you love this country and if there's something in you that sees that things are going in the wrong direction, this is how you do it. It already worked once. And we have the opportunity, and I think as a church we have the responsibility not to be content with making points. I think we're here to make a difference. You know how you make a difference? You love one another. You love your enemies. You take care of those that don't take care of you. You live in the very opposite fashion of the people around you. We are the hands and the feet of Jesus in our culture. Jesus had dinner with the Pharisee. Jesus had dinner with Matthew. Whose side are you on, Jesus? Not here to take sides. I'm here to build relational bridges. So when political and cultural issues interface with biblical teaching, we're going to talk about it. We're not going to try to dodge the difficult things. In fact, next week we're beginning a sermon series called The Sex Talk. We're going to talk all about what culture is saying about sex and what the scripture says about sex and identity and marriage and all those things. So we don't, we don't dodge difficult things. When the scripture is clear, we're going to be clear. When something is scriptural and conflicts with something that in our culture, we're not going to shrink away from it. We're, going to, we're not going to shy away from the issues. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to say, here's what's going on in culture. Here's what the scripture teaches. And if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, here's how you should respond. Let's us get this right, regardless of what culture says, and regardless of what culture does. That's exactly what Jesus taught. And then the last thing is this. We're not always going to get it right. We're not. It would be easy, be very easy to be very political. And just chase everybody off that doesn't agree with us. Be easy to put our head in the sand and just teach verse by verse through the Bible and ignore all the political and all the cultural issues because we're biblical. Be very easy to do that. But to do what we're attempting to do, to make a difference, it is difficult and it's messy. It's messy. As a church, to really make a difference, we have to walk toward the messes. We don't shy away. We think that's what Jesus did. We walk toward messes. You know why? Because all of us either were a mess, are a mess, or will be a mess. Listen, the mission of the church is that the world would know that God has done something in the world, that he sent his son into the world. He is Jesus the Christ, as Peter said, the son of the living God. He died on a cross and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. And we know that when that message grips the heart and the soul of an individual, it begins to change them from the inside out. And they become more compassionate. And they become more generous. They become more loving. They become better husbands and better wives and better fathers and better mothers. They become more consistent in terms of their, of their morality and their ethics. They're more honest. They're better employers. They're better employees. We change from the inside out. That's the message. That's the gospel. And that's what changed the world. And that's what will continue to change the world. 
So let's be a light. Let's confuse everybody with our generosity, our benevolence. Let's be a light that's so confounding to people that they say, I, I got to know what's going on there. And you know what? Let's let our conversations be full of grace. You know what will happen? We'll make a difference. That's what Jesus taught, and that's what Paul modeled, and that's what the early church did. And that's the opportunity that we have. All right? Let's pray. Lord, we pray for your help in a, in a political and cultural moment where it's very easy to make a point. We pray that you would give us the wisdom and the strength to make a difference. Lord, help us to let our light shine in the world. Lord, we thank you that you are always good, and that you do good. It's in your name that we pray. Everybody said, amen.